praise, praise God, praise God. I want to welcome our listening audience, our um, video audience. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are in part of our series, When in Doubt. And uh, how many... It'll be uh, the final one, but uh, I am actually bringing you today, it sounds confusing, but it is part four of When in Doubt, but I'm bringing you part two of the message that I gave a couple of Sundays ago. So if you were here uh, two Sundays back, I gave part one, and today I'm going to conclude that part one to part two, and I entitled it, Adjust Your Perspective, Adjust Your Perspective, and um, I'm going a little bit not off trail. How do I want to say this? More like um, I'm going I'm going a different uh, route because when you uh, see a title like this, you often would think that, okay, well, they're going to talk mainly about faith. And, yes, we have been talking about faith, and this brings a lot to the surface with uh, to our faith. But I, I think that you are getting a broader perspective of this series, if you will. So, again, I'm bringing you of the message that I brought two Sundays ago. Uh, if you're taking notes, I entitled it Adjust Your Perspective. Um, if you were not here for part one, I highly encourage you to go to our YouTube channel or to our website and listen to that. I brought several pictures of our trip to Greece, so that was kind of fun. I think that many of you enjoyed that because, honestly, our trip to Greece was very educational, very, very resourceful, and it was uh, most definitely not a vacation, if you will, but it was more of an educational type of trip. So go back to that and watch it there. And today I'm actually going to bring you as well some pictures from our trip, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, I do want you to go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. But what I want you to do is I want you to hold that. And we're going to read it in just a minute. But <clears throat> I'm going to start off this morning by giving you just a little bit of stories. And uh, I'm going to read something to you. And I'm also going to just give you some foundational work before we get to the scripture. Are you there? Okay, just keep it there for me. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter number 12. But in a nutshell, while you're going there, um, uh, last time I showed you where Paul baptized Lydia, the first European woman to be baptized. Uh, that was a, a, an unforgettable experience of the place that we actually stepped foot at. And, you know, just uh, reviving that story in the Bible was very very beautiful, and I also showed you pictures of where Paul and Silas were imprisoned, uh, and by the way, that was the correct picture, um, when you look back at the message that I gave that, that day, we were kind of like wondering if that was the correct one, you know, I mean, you see a lot of rocks <laughs> in, in these excavation places and, and whatnot, and sometimes they get mixed up, but that was the location, actually, where Paul and Silas were imprisoned, uh, so that was kind of neat to see. Then I, I took you to the Areopagus. Do you remember that? Areopagus or Mars Hill. It's better known as Mars Hill. Uh, in uh, maybe some of your Bibles, you'll see Mars Hill. And this is where Paul addressed the Athen Athenians about the inscription 
uh, to the unknown God. And we can read about that story in the book of Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 16 through 34. And we read that last time. So I took you there. And that was, again, one of those situations where while we were in Greece, the word of God just came alive so beautifully because we were actually on Mars Hill. We were actually on that big hilly rock. Uh, and we actually saw the, um, uh, the temples that Paul would have seen in, in its glory in those days. We saw the, the uh, remains of them, but nonetheless, we were able to see the fact that this is what Paul saw while he was standing there. So it was really interesting. Uh, we brought two points, two main points uh, that was shared that stood out to me. And, and you know, looking back, I remember one of the days that, uh, you know, certain people were testifying of what the trip has meant uh, to them thus far during the trip. We almost all the time that we would um, go to a different hotel, we would gather uh, the whole 42 group together and we would have either a word or uh, testify. And so at the end, uh, many people started to testify of what this trip meant to them. And one of the things I didn't share, but I, I did keep in my heart and in my mind because I knew that I would bring this up at some point in time to our congregation, and that is that I found uh, an incredible courage of Paul. And that was one of that my main point last time was Paul's courage. And we touched a little bit at length about that. And then the second one is that I'm going to be touching more today is number two, and that is his wisdom. His wisdom to communicate in a strange environment. In other words, the language that Paul uses to reach the particular audience that he had before him. Paul was incredibly courageous. And I really, really hope that you get a chance to listen to that message if you didn't get to last time or even listen to it again. But Paul was incredibly courageous uh, to come down to uh, an unknown territory and speak in front of well-educated men and women, for example, at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, like I said, and many other places uh, throughout the the nations, they are about one God. And so here is Paul preaching about one God. And this was a foreign concept to these people, to the Greeks. Why? Because they believed in many gods. Little g, gods. But here is Paul saying, forget those gods that you are worshiping. I know who the one true God, capital G, is. Let me tell you about him. Amen? So, again, this was a, a foreign concept. And yet, he relentlessly, relentlessly pursued with the message of the gospel in spite of the resistance and hostility that he received. Now, I'm going to be showing some more pictures today. And, you know, you might be wondering, you know, Pastor Yvette, what's the purpose of bringing up these topics or these pictures, for example, of and why talk about, you know, mythical gods and, and whatnot and these Greek beliefs and stuff. Don't we want to just stick to the gospel? Well, my answer to that is many, uh, I have many answers, 
But one in particular that I want to bring to you today is that haven't you ever wondered or, or read scripture that you've scratched your head and you've wondered, what in the world is that about? Right? And, 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 and does, does that make sense? That doesn't make any sense to me. Or, God, what are you really saying in this scripture? Anybody? Is it just me? But, I mean, the Bible is filled with, with um, stories and, and just things and God commanding certain things. And, and even the scriptures, even the, the letters of Paul. And sometimes you scratch your head and you go, I wonder what that means. I wonder what, that I wonder what the author really meant here. Because... You see, we have to adjust our perspective. You understand? We have to adjust our perspective. We're not adjusting the word. Don't misunderstand. Don't get it wrong here. We will never, ever adjust the word and copy and paste or anything like that. We're not going to do a Thomas Jefferson. Hello, anybody? We're, we're not going to do that. Do you all know what I mean by that? Do you not know? Who, who does not know what I mean by that? Thomas Jefferson created his own New Testament. He cut and pasted certain things from the New Testament, and he made it into Thomas Jefferson's New Testament. Yes, our founding fathers. Okay, anyway, I won't go into that. But the fact of the matter is we are not going to adjust Scripture to whatever it is that we feel like it. We don't do that here. And I hope you never will. We take the word of God for the true word of God, the uncompromised word of God, the pure word of God. What I'm saying is that we in our mindset have to adjust our perspective and try to understand scripture with the mindset of the second temple period Jews. Why? Because we do a disservice to ourselves many times when we read and study the Word of God with a modern 21st century mindset. Why? Because we're used to our culture. We're used to the way we speak. We're used to the way that we think. But we have to sometimes adjust our perspective and see what they saw, or at least try, right? And we, we, the Bible, believe it or not, the Bible comes even more alive when we do that. When we understand a little more of, of what they understood, the books that they may have been reading at the time, the books that they may have very well understood, I think we miss the point a lot of times. Now, I don't know if you've noticed but recently, more and more pastors and teachers are bringing up the pre-flood topic. How many of you have noticed that? Well, let me inform you. A lot of pastors and preachers and teachers of the Word of God, theologians nowadays, as of recently, have been bringing up the pre-flood topic more and more. I've noticed it. Most of you are very familiar with Rick Renner. Yes? I quote Rick Renner all the time. I have a picture with Rick Renner from a conference that I went to a few years back, and I had to come up to, to him, and I had to say, Pastor Rick Renner, I, I love your work. 
can I take a picture with you? Because I quote you all the time so that my church can see that I met you. And so he's like, oh, thank you so much. This guy's like this big, and he's a big teddy bear. Pastor and I got a chance to meet him. And uh, he, his, his ministry is in Russia. So pray, we, we partner with Rick Renner ministry and, uh, please keep their ministry in prayer. But he is my, one of my all time favorite scholars. He's also known in the Christian community as a Greek scholar. So believe it or not, now that I've been to Greece, I, I appreciate his work even more. Does that make sense? Right? And so anyway, he came out with a new study. And the women know that we like Rick Renner. As a matter of fact, we are still in the middle of a, a Rick Renner study that we're almost finished with. But he just recently came out with a brand new study. Hint, hint, ladies, I may bring it up as a future uh, study. However, I think the men will be kind of jealous. And so I don't know what I'm going to do about all that. However, do you want to know what it is called? What the study's called? Oh, you are enthusiastic this morning. The study is called Fallen Angels, Giants, Monsters, and the World Before the Flood. When I saw him announcing this, I, I follow him and I, you know, I get his emails all the time. I, I was telling Jen this morning, my mouth dropped. Because I have, I have Rick Renner materials of all kinds. I mean, I've, I've studied, you know, many of his teachings and, and study guides, and I have several of his books. But never has he done a study of this magnitude. And he even says that he's been wanting to do this study for many years. So he is on site in, um, uh, oh my goodness, right now I forget the name of the place, but it might come to me. But he is on site where it is believed that Noah's Ark is, Ararat, Mount Ararat, okay, during the study. So he talks a, a little bit about that. Anyway, put that on the shelf and put that on the side. I just wanted to explain that to you because this kind of topic is something that I think that the Lord is awakening his church, now, my point is that when Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37, for, does anybody know that scripture? It says, for as were the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be at the coming of the Son of Man. If this is if these are Jesus' words, Jen, I'm going to take them with a very strong value. I'm going to put a lot of weight on those words because they are coming straight from Jesus. This, I believe, is resonating in the hearts and in the minds of God's people more and more as of late. I'm talking just maybe few, a very few short years now. Why? Because in, in order to be ready to be better equipped and discern the times and the seasons, to discern what is happening now and what is coming in the future, we have to go back in time and recognize the things that were happening before the flood. You see, 
So it's important. If Jesus said it, then we have to put stock on it and we have to pay attention. And so we have to study it. Does that make sense to everybody? So before I go on to point two, um, and this is not going to be an elongated message today, uh, but before I go on to point two of today's teaching, allow me to read to you an article from my new friend, Derek Gilbert. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Derek Gilbert? He has been on Table Talk a couple of times. And the last time I had him on, I had him on with him and his beautiful wife, Sharon, who's got a fantastic ministry. My goodness, this woman is a brain. And uh, hint, hint, I'm going to be having them again very soon. So I'm really excited about that. So this is an article from his website. I want you to jot this down for those of you that are taking note, notes. It's gilberthouse.org, gilberthouse.org. And uh, please go to his website and even subscribe to his articles. You'll get stuff like what I'm about to read you here because it's really fascinating. And you can see all of his books and, and things like that. But he's got enormous insight. But the the article is actually entitled, are you ready for this? Don't freak out on me, church, okay? The, the title of it is The Second Coming of Hercules. Okay? Derek Gilbert for you. So when I came across this recently, and by the way, it's written back in January of this year, but I came across it recently. I knew that the Lord was showing me that we were on the right track. And I reached out to Derek and I asked if I can quote him. And he replied right away and he said, it would be my honor. So with that, um, let me read you this short script for a moment and you'll soon see how it coincides with today's message. Are you ready? So the second coming of Hercules and he says, the gods of Greek mythology are real. They're angry, and they're coming back. Wait, you're thinking, I thought this guy was a Christian. Exactly. The Greek tales of their deities and demigods are, listen to this. Jen, you'll remember this word I just used a moment ago with you back there in private. The Greek tales of their deities and demigods are bastardized versions of true history. Zeus is Satan. The Titans are the sons of God who came into the daughters of man. The heroes of the golden age were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. That's scriptural, that phrase from Genesis 6. Now let's be clear. I want to say this nice and loud, and I highlighted it in my notes because he says, now let's be clear. We Christians do not seek truth in the myths of Greece and Rome. Amen? We can, however, gain a deeper understanding of the Bible by viewing the world through the eyes of the prophets and apostles, and they knew very well what their pagan neighbors believed. Much of what they wrote was direct, directed, I should say, at the pagan gods. Exactly what I just finished telling you just a few moments ago. Are you still with me? I would add to that, uh, that much of what Jesus uh, said and did, and I've said this several times already, and the places that Jesus went to, the, the places he stepped on, 
were also directed to these pagan deities. It was almost as if it was twofold in a way. It was for us to get a, get, uh, gain a better understanding. I'm talking about some things that Jesus said, but it was also, too, directed to pagan gods. Now I continue with quoting here. It says, if you were brought up in church, there's a good chance that, like me, you were taught that the idols of the pagans were lifeless blocks of wood and stone. Amen to that? I know I was, I was one. That's true to a point. The pagans didn't worship those carved images. An idol was like an antenna, a spiritual receiver that gave a god locality, a place to appear when the faithful called. These gods, though, they're real. That's not the default teaching of most Christian churches. Sadly, most are out of step with the God they serve. God called the idols gods, little g. So I'm on solid theological ground here, he says. He's judged them, found them wanting, and proclaimed a sentence of death on these rebels. But they're not dead yet. And just as you and I have free will to choose between right and wrong, so do they. God, who has seen the end from the beginning, has revealed enough about their plans through prophecy in the Bible to tell us that the ride on earth will get rough before Christ returns. Reading those prophecies with a better understanding of what the Hebrew prophets knew about the pagan gods reveals some startling insights about what lies ahead. He goes on to say, in my 2018 book, Last Clash of the Titans, which I highly recommend, I presented evidence for a number of claims, many of which hadn't been made before to the best of my knowledge. And then he's got some bullet points here. I'll read them as number one, two, and three. Number one, the Titans, the old gods of the Greeks, are the biblical watchers, the sons of God, who took daughters of men as wives, as, as described in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Their offspring, the Nephilim, later called Rephaim, or the Nephilim, later called Rephaim, were the heroes and demigods of the Greeks. The Amorites summoned, point number three, the Amorites summoned the spirits of the Rephaim through necromancy rituals and believed they were the ancestors of their kings. Number five. Balaam's prophecy over Israel foretold the final destruction of the Nephilim by the Messiah. Number six, Ezekiel's prophecy of Gog and Magog tells us when and where they'll be destroyed. Number seven, Gog won't be, Gog won't be human and Magog is not Russia. Number eight, the spirit of primordial chaos, Leviathan, returns from the abyss as the Antichrist. 
and 9. The Titans and their seed, the spirits of the Rephaim, return in the last days to fight at Armageddon. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Does that scripture not ring a little louder to you? He goes on to say, I'm almost done. As you may have noticed, the book focused on the supernatural players of the end times. We spend too much time debating whether Vladimir Putin is Gog and not enough trying, enough, enough trying to discern the principalities and powers behind the scenes. Now, I could be wrong about much of this. However, my analysis is backed by peer-reviewed academic research. Most of it comes from secular scholars with no dog in the eschatological hunt. They found many of the pieces of the puzzle, but they don't see the whole picture because the missing pieces are in the Bible. You see? They don't do, they don't make the connections or they don't want to make the connections, right? And most of those scholars just won't look there. Likewise, many learned students and scholars of the Bible don't look to secular academia for information. We Christians do, do see the big picture, but much of the background image is missing. There is no context for the crossing of the Red Sea, the march around the walls of Jericho, or the confrontation between Elijah and the priests of Baal. Why did God ask such things of his people? These are answers to those questions. Root, there are answers to those questions rooted in the history, culture, and religion of the people who lived in the lands of the Bible during the age of the prophets and apostles. And that's, those, those are the reasons why I like to bring these kinds of studies, especially when I do a lot of these table talks and have individuals such as Derek and his wife. Lastly, he says, is understanding that concept essential to your eternal salvation? No. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your future is secure. Can I get an amen to that? But, here's the but of this. Understanding how the pagan gods of the ancient world have successfully rebranded themselves as action heroes for the major motion pictures might be useful to reaching the lost. And that my friends, pretty much is, in a nutshell, what we've been talking about, right? It says here, as Baudelaire wrote, the finest trick of the devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. Recent research shows that nearly 60%, 60%, get that in your heads, 60% of American Christians have fallen for that lie. Christians. God's statement is as true today as it was 27 years ago. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. How do you resist an enemy you think is make-believe? Zeus, Hercules, the Olympians, and the Titans are real. They hate us. They want to kill us, and they're coming back. Get ready. End of quote. End of article. How do you like them apples? Was that interesting?
I could say amen to that and finish up and close for service. But I won't because I have pictures to show you and I have things that I want to say. So my second point in this message, and you'll, you'll see the correlation as I've been discussing, and one that I didn't, wasn't able to give last time for the sake of time was, again, number two, Paul's wisdom to communicate to his audience. In other words, the language that he used. Are you in 1 Corinthians 12? Was that good foundational before reading the word? You're, you're going to get a beautiful revelation just about now. Are you ready for it? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse number 1. I want you to listen closely. Open your heart and your eyes and your mind. Listen closely as Paul is addressing the church in Corinth this way. Verse number one. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts. Start underlining and highlighting some of these verses and verbiages. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, that's a capital S, Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Underline that, wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge. Underline that as well. According to the same spirit, to another, faith. Underline that. By the same spirit, to another, gifts of healing. Healing. Underline that. By the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. Underline miracles. To another, prophecy, underline prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, underline that as well. To another, various kinds of tongues, ditto to that, underline it. To another, the interpretation of tongues as well. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit. Remember now, he... He was talking here, obviously, to the church in Corinth. These are saved individuals, but remember that their mindsets had, had been before the belief of many pagan gods. He is talking here, one spirit, one God, amen? Many gifts, many members, but one spirit, one God. Shall I continue? Verse 12, let me repeat that. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to think, to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. 
If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would, the, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 22, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Verse 27, finally, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, this is one of those verses, uh, scriptures, chapters that maybe maybe you maybe or maybe not you might scratch your head and go you know what what's what's paul really meaning here obviously the obvious answer is that we the body he's talking about the body of christ right and and just the same way that we have different gifts within the body of christ the church you know some might have uh, you know the the gifts of, of healing or prophecy or whatnot, all of the ones that we discussed here. And they are, um, he, he makes the analogy together with, you know, the hand and the feet and the eye and the ear and all of this. And so he's talking about the body, the church of, of Christ. But you see, Paul knew, and that, that is true. I'm not saying it's false. I, I'm saying that's true. But a lot of these, um, uh, terminologies, if you will, could very well be twofold. They could have another meaning or they could have a deeper meaning. And those are the things that we dig out sometimes and bring to light. You see, Paul knew his calling. He was aware that he was called as an apostle to the nations. Uh, as we said last time, uh, that is inscribed in all the places around the, the footsteps of Paul that we went in Greece, apostle to the nations, apostle, that he was dubbed apostle to the nations. This is where it all began. Uh, this meant that his primary audience were those in Greece. When he went to Greece, this is where it all began. And really and truly, like I keep saying this, it was, it was all, we were awestruck to actually get there to Greece and go, wow. We're in the place, almost like going when, to, when we go to Israel. This is the place it all began. This is where Paul came and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. My goodness gracious, we are in that land. It was so beautiful to see. So 
He would often use figures of speech that his Greek-speaking audience in the pagan world would recognize, as well as for those, obviously, that had been converted to Christianity. Do you want to know why Paul uses this terminology in the verses we just read? I guess I'll just wait to see if the Wheaties you ate this morning <laughs> strikes in. Do you want to know why Paul uses some of this terminology? Okay, that's a little better. The reason Paul uses this metaphor of the different body parts is because when he was in Corinth, he noticed that a god, little g, by the name of Asclepius, was worshipped. Asclepius. I want, I want you to see a picture of this pagan god, Asclepius. When we visited ancient Corinth, we went to the archaeological museum of ancient Corinth, uh, which was really interesting. Uh, there we saw a section depicted that said, it had a, a sign and it said, the sanctuary of Asclepion. I want you to show the picture of, of that um, that I took because as I, as I walked back into the museum real quick, you don't see it up there so clearly, but up there in Greek and in English it says, Asclepion, the healing sanctuary. Okay? So in this same vicinity of this museum, where this museum lies, uh, so there's a building and it's a museum, is where we find the ancient temple of Apollo, as well as the bima, or the judgment seat, where Paul was brought by the elders of the synagogue of Corinth to accuse him of teaching against the Mosaic law. Um, uh, when you step out of this museum in this wide open area, that is ancient Corinth. And at a distance, you see the ruins of this ancient temple of Apollo. And then uh, across from it is where it is called the, the Bema or the judgment seat. Thank you for bringing that up. That was my next uh, picture that I wanted to bring up. Uh, if you remember in the book of Acts, chapter number 18, Paul, and, and just hold it there on that picture for me, please. Paul is, is brought to the judgment seat. He is brought to this bima, and uh, that's what it means, bima in, in Greek. And uh, he is uh, being judged for, or he's being accused, I should say, for teaching against the Mosaic, Mosaic law. Go back to Acts 18 when you have time and read that story. And then there's this, a uh, gentleman by the name of Gallio uh, who comes up and he said he's a proconsul uh, and he founds he finds no offense in Paul's teaching and he sends the people away and again like we we don't have time today but in the book of Acts chapter 18 you can read that these pictures are really neat because pastor and I got the opportunity to actually go around this is all ancient Corinth and we stood on that bima that judgment seat where Paul stood. And this is one of those, those aha, wonderful moments that it wasn't like built upon and built upon. This was actual. This is where Paul actually stepped on uh, this area. So if you would scroll over, that, um, that stone you see there has a beautiful verse, and you can see it there in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for the slight momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison. And I looked at that and I said, I've got to take a picture of that because I'll tell you what, that, that verse has been resounding in my spirit for quite a number of months now. Go to the next picture, if you will. And that is Pastor standing there. And a lot of those slabs are original slabs as well. Go to the next one and see where it says Bima. I'm pointing like Vanna. Go to the next one, <clears throat> if there is. Okay, and that right there from where we were, that is the view of the ancient temple of Apollo. Okay, so imagine here's Paul back over here being um, accused and he's seeing the temple right there. Okay, hold that for, for me for just a moment. Now, I want, I want my media team back there who's doing an amazing job as always. Uh, kudos to them. Return to the um, picture of Asclepius. Greeks believed that he was the God who possessed the gift of healing and medicine, as well as the powers of prophecy. Interestingly, as you see in the picture, he was depicted with a staff and a serpent coiled around it. <clears throat> see that? Now, here's where I'm going. Statues depicting different body parts have been found by archaeologists and are displayed throughout Greece in honor of Asclepius. For example, arms, legs, ears, believe it or not, even some private parts. Many times... Patients would leave votive offerings to this God depicting the body parts that were cured. I want you to show the picture of the statue dedicated to the body parts, and I found this one in Alta, Alta uh, sorry, atlasobscura.com to give them credit. Um, this is one that was found. You see, there's a foot, eyes, face. This is part of a statue they found. This is in dedication to the god Asclepius because of the healing that took place. Now, I want you to show really quick the picture of the votives. This is found from holylandphotos.com. You see these? These were found as well, arms. Okay, you could take that off. <clears throat> Paul uses this knowledge to describe to new believers that although there are many parts of the body, but we are all part of one body in Jesus. Not only that, but that all the gifts mentioned in the verses above that we just read, including healing, and prophecy, which were believed to be the ones that Asclepius possessed, Paul brings it home by stating that the variety of gifts come from the same spirit, the spirit of the living God, not Asclepius. Now, I don't know about you, but that is exciting. I think that is one of the coolest things. It's like this backhanded 
teaching, if you will. It's this backhanded letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth where all of these gods are worshipped, where these beautiful Christian folks that have come out of the pit of hell because they, that's who, those are who they believed in before, those gods. And they have been rescued and now are walking in the light of Jesus. Paul is saying, hey guys, look, let me explain something to you. It's not Asclepius. These gifts and these body parts are the body parts of Christ Jesus. Asclepius has nothing to do with it. He has no power. Amen? So the Corinth, the, those in Corinth would have completely resonated with this analogy. Imagine receiving this letter from Paul. And mind you, think about it. In those days, it wasn't like you got to copy it and then send it out to, and it was no emails, no snail mail. I mean, it was snail mail. It was really snail mail. It was one letter, and this letter was taken to the church in Corinth when they read it, when they saw the words. They, it had to have resonated with them. They had to, they related. They were like, wow, look what Paul is saying. Isn't that incredible? Speaking their language, the wisdom of Paul. Now, can I give you one last brief ex example? Is that okay with you? Amen. After further study, there was an incredible amount of fornication and sexual perversion in this area, in Greece uh, at large. And many of you have probably heard this name, Aphrodite. Aphrodite, who is known to the Romans as Venus, okay, because they go by different names, depending on the region. She was known as the goddess associated with love. Lust, fertility, beauty, passion, sexuality, prostitution, just to name a few. She was also associated with war. So you see that Paul uses again this knowledge and of course uses wisdom to communicate with his audience. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. the language of love in this chapter. And he says in 4 through 7, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, Paul here is describing the purity and the beauty of authentic love that can only be found in and through Christ. Only. It can only be found in and through Christ. It had nothing, it has nothing to do with lust. 
It has nothing to do with fornication or burning passions, much like this goddess portrayed. Paul is basically communicating to the Corinth church that their past understanding of what love was when they used to worship Aphrodite is far from the true definition of love. And one last note about this. It is believed that this goddess Aphrodite occasionally presided over marriages. And isn't it interesting that now we use these same verses for performing marriages? Isn't that amazing? So for Paul to speak the language of those drenched in the pagan world speaks of his wisdom and shows us to rely on God's wisdom to be able to reach others for Christ. Will you stand with me this morning? That's just scratching the surface. I can't wait to dig in some more. Can you? Amen. I can't wait for more revelation from the Lord because the Bible comes alive, doesn't it? Now, whenever you read uh, 1 Corinthians 13 or 1 Corinthians 12, are you going to see it in a different light? Amen? So, basically, in closing, I guess what I'm trying to express to you today rests on several things. We have to adjust our perspective. First of all, there's nothing impossible for God. If he used Paul to reach a pagan nation for Christ, he can and certainly will use you if you're willing. When in doubt about a certain scripture, let's dig deeper and search it out. Let's adjust our perspective so that we can gain a little bit of a better understanding of what those words meant. And how about we follow the example of Paul and be courageous enough to open up our mouths and bring the gospel to our friends and families? Don't shy away from that. You never know who God is going to bring your way to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that person, no matter how hard and far off you think they might be, think again. Because God can use you to witness to that person, to plant that little seed, and then you see it grow one day, that's incredible. That's amazing that God would do that. Also, another point is ask God for wisdom to share the gospel by speaking the language of those that are lost. You'd be surprised at how he will guide you and give you the right things to say at the right time. And this is really one of the reasons why I bring some of the topics that I bring and I put forth maybe on a lot of table talks. Why? Because what I want is for people to understand that the Bible is alive, that the Bible is true, that the Bible is very interesting, 
It's not some boring book that you open up and you fall asleep while reading it. It's not boring whatsoever. If you would only open it up more and more and study it more and more, it'll come alive to you. I want people to come to uh, the realization that what is happening in our world today is precisely what the Bible said would occur and what will happen as well in the future. And then when in doubt, may we look at the enormous amount of sacrifice of each of the apostles of Jesus and what they went through to spread the gospel to a dark world. And today, today, we are still reaping the benefits of their labor. Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to ask, uh, as we always do, we always give an opportunity for those that are here, those that are listening online, that if you don't know the one true God, you see, it's interesting. Sometimes you see, you meet people, and you don't know them from Adam. And all of a sudden they'll say, oh, yes, they'll throw out the Christian words, some Christianese, blessing, or yes, I believe God is going to help me with this. And we on the other side assume that they are Christians. Yet when you look closely, they might have in their hand or on their wrist, I should say, or in, on their necks, they might have some kind of pagan god hanging. They might have the evil eye, for example. We see a lot of that here in the Latin community because of the place that we live in, in the Miami-Dade uh, County area. We see that a lot. We just walk over to the city next to us, Hialeah, and uh, it's filled with gods, little g-gods. So sometimes we think that someone may be a Christian, yet they will mix in Christianity. They'll mix in Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Yes, they'll call out the name of Jesus. They'll talk about God. But at the same time, they have all these other gods, all these other entities that they also serve and believe. But see, our God is a jealous God. And he and he alone is the one to be worshipped. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So it's not all these other things that you might believe in. If you're listening out there, perhaps you have a friend or two that maybe you need to send this message to. Perhaps you are in that same boat. And I'm here to tell you that you will not get to heaven unless it is through Jesus. You will not get to your eternal home in heaven with the Father unless you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I'm giving you that opportunity this morning. And really and truly, it's no mystical thing that you have to do. No ritual you have to perform or sacrifice that you have to do because Jesus already gave himself. He's the ultimate sacrifice. But it's a simple prayer. And that prayer goes like this, and if you would like to join me in that. And say, Father, 
I receive you, Jesus, your son, Lord, as my savior, as my redeemer, as my Messiah. I open up my heart to you today. Forgive me of my sins. I reject all other beliefs in any other religion or gods. And I only believe in you. I am confessing with my mouth and believing with my heart that Jesus is Lord. Holy Spirit, come and help me understand scripture, understand the Bible, and understand God in a better way. I ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Come on, let's praise God for those that are watching online and have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Please reach out to us. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation of your word. I thank you, God, that you give us these beautiful, tasty nuggets, these treasures that are found in your word. I thank you for them, oh God. Lord, I pray that you will continue to do so as the time of your return, Jesus, is so near. But help us to better understand that we may better be equipped to reach the lost for Jesus Christ, for the kingdom of God. We ask these things in your mighty and precious and holy name. And I pray for blessings upon blessings over my brothers and my sisters this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. God bless you.